Welcome to the Performance Health Podcast. My name is Tim Karen. Today we're going to be talking about practical energy system development. If you were with us last week, we talked about principles. We talked about the three phases, right? We're building into this now idea of what is performance. It's probably less about the power, more about the ability to repeat that output and capacity. Huge part of this, but that's actually been a big theme for what we've been talking about with all of our modules is what is the bandwidth? What is the variability is what determines the resiliency and robustness of that athlete. So huge theme, build variability, build a wider bandwidth to develop higher levels of performance and greater resiliency. Before we get into that, let's talk about a couple things. One, we have strength deficit. It's available for pre-order at phpodcast.com. Reason why you probably want to pre-order this now is you save $10 off the retail price, which will be featured on Amazon, as well as through July, we're offering the programs that inspired the book. The books, that, the programs that I used at Army West Point in 2016 that I thought would be a really cool segue into creating a book to just unfold why I thought this was a great idea to go programming perspective, as well as the underlying research mechanisms and and really overall thought process to how we program this. We have some great testimonials from great coaches out there like Brett Bartholomew, Daniel Martinez, Will Greenberg, Rob Jacobs, some people that I really respect and admire basically told me straight that this is a good resource. So I hope that's that's something that all of us out there can utilize and benefit from. And that's available for pre-order at phpodcast.com. Realize that me. It is your command center for all health and performance data. Big problem in strength conditioning. It's where do we, what do we do with the data that we have and how do we organize in a way that's really understandable, digestible, and efficient? Big problem. We all have data that we're collecting and we're working really hard to try to corral that into one single location. We're either making Excel files or pivot tables or Google Docs. Well, realize.me has fixed that for us. It's created a single source platform for all of our data. All of my training data we access from Bridge or we could utilize other platforms. All of my wearables like Aura and Polar, all of my stuff like CGM, any supplement that I'm tracking, my wellness, my RPE, my workloads, everything is going to realize seamlessly, right? I record it on, the well, on my wearable and it automatically migrates to that. All of the stuff from my vault, force deck, Nord board, Dynamo, all of that's going to realize. All I got to do is do the test and it syncs right into my realize platform. So now I have all that data there. I can look at it and say, am I making the progress I want to make? But more importantly is I can create experiments. Do I have the ability to change something and have the metrics that either cooperate that or really tell me otherwise, right? So I can start to say, hey, what would be, what would happen from a body composition perspective if I do this protocol, protocol right? Maybe I want to do a body compositional effect in my training. What would happen? Maybe I want to work on more oxidative capacity. Okay, well, let's look at my workloads through Aura and Whoop. Maybe I want to look at it from the perspective of supplements. So everything that I'm tracking supplement-wise gets migrated over into Realize, and I can see the cause and effect relationship of taking a gram of carnitine per day. All of that is right there at Realize.me. This is a huge problem for our personal gym here at Allegiant. And I, I can't tell you how effective and valuable Realize.me has become for us. Also, if you get on Realize uh, waitlist, you'll get special discounts on labs and supplements and all this other great stuff that's available. Not only that, you just actually get access to probably the best part of it, that platform. So go to Realize.me, get on that platform, get on the waitlist. It's a huge asset. I guarantee you'll really love it because it's going to be 
a game changing thing for you and your staff and you and your collecting of your data. So as you're going through all this stuff, um, tracking, getting into the wormhole, use realize.me because it's going to be a huge game changer for you. All right, guys, let's get into it. We got energy system practical. Hope you guys enjoy. If you guys haven't subscribed to our newsletter, we have tons of information coming out. So make sure you get on that. Gives you a whole breakdown of the month as well as some different stuff that's coming up on the horizon. So we're going to talk about now the practical of our energy system module. So one of the things that we wanted to get across within our first one is just what are energy systems and what are bioenergetics. And we looked at this classic model of looking at alactic, glycolytic, and oxidative. And one of the things that hopefully will come out is this is just a model and this is something to give us some sort of frame of reference. We're learning a ton in terms of there's not an absolute truth to this. There's some there's some nuance to it. And to be completely frank, you know, this is probably a pretty antiquated view of what this actual what actually goes on in the human body in terms of procuring and making energy. But if we can kind of think about this from what our conversation was with someone like Preston Green on cardiovascular system is I don't think we're thinking in this linear fashion and like going, oh my God, I'm only working alactic. You know, and much like we talked about with force velocity and work is, you know, we're kind of blending a lot of different things, right? We're, we're, we're conjugate in a way in which we look at our training, right? We're never really isolating a specific facet in any training. As much as we want to either allocate stress in a very deliberate manner and trying to compartmentalize it and look at it from, well, it's just eliminate all other noise and just focus on doing one single thing so I can see the cause and effect relationship. We're never really truly doing that. And one of the things that will come out when we talk with Evan Pycon is this idea that oxygen and lactic acid is always present. And in fact, the, the people that use oxygen more rapidly or deplete oxygen stores or desaturate cellular, cellular level at a cellular level, oxygen are the ones who are probably using more of the high energy phosphates more readily and the ability to return oxygen to that area is just essentially our efficiency. But I think that's a great jump off point into, you know, what is really performance? What, what can we constitute as success in terms of developing athletes to perform at the highest level. And it'll come into this idea of, do we need to reach this absolute high level of force or velocity or power? Or can I repeat that? Am I better served performing a 100 meter sprint in sub 10 seconds, knowing that that athlete will not be able to do anything afterwards versus getting an athlete be able to do that multiple times of a less than effort, right? So a 10 second, hundred meter sprint for 10 reps, you know, and I'm just speaking in generalities to kind of give some sort of point of reference, you know, team sports is different than a cyclical sport like rowing or swimming or sprinting or shot put anything that's, very singular effort focus is a different animal altogether. And when we're trying to really understand what is performance, 
we have to really understand the idea of what actually makes performance work. You know, you can look at this in a multitude of ways, right? Fourth quarter in football, fourth quarter or second half in basketball, looking at that fifth set in tennis, looking at that soccer when they get in a minute 60 or a minute zero, I guess, after 60 minutes of play, you know, what is their ability to finish, you know, period three in hockey? You know, what? what is their ability after playing two-thirds, three-quarters to execute at a high level and having enough of this bioenergetic capacity to beat your opponent towards the end? One of the things that we've talked about previously, and this is something that uh, I, th- I think is relevant, um, this idea of central governor with Timothy Noakes and looking at, well, if someone's really depleting all of their body's energy stores at the level they're doing in terms of these marathons or ultra marathons, how is it that they have this kick at the end, right? So if someone has this much glycogen and glucose circulating in their body and they've gone for multiple hours on end with very high energy output, how is it that they can still utilize or still have a late kick to finish at a higher split towards the end, relatively speaking, right? So they're running a marathon and their average mar- average time per mile is, you know, four and a half, five minutes, right? Like, let's just say this is an elite level marathoner for the first three quarters of that race. And then all of a sudden, it's getting neck and neck with this guy that they really want to be. And then they have this kick and they kick up that pace to 445. How is that possible? Really, honestly, from uh, from a question of if we only have a finite amount of glycogen and glucose and ATP and, and high energy phosphates within the body, and you start to utilize some different pathways like gluconeogenesis and start to burn some fat or muscle tissue, how is it that you can go that long at that pace, depleting energy at such a level that you actually have a kick at the end, right? Like if you look at it from the analogy of a car, you know, if we're driving 60 miles per hour and we have a full tank and we go for eight hours straight, it's like I get to E, I have zero fuel left, but all of a sudden I can go at a faster pace for the last leg of the drive with zero gas. Like that's the great question here. And this is what I think about when we think about developing athletes. You know, we, we have to look at it from what's going to pull that athlete into the direction of performance. Is it increasing their back squat to such a degree, and you get into this debate of strong enough, versus this idea of, well, is it better to be able to repeat that multiple times at a quote-unquote less than effort, right? Their 1RM is 500, but they can do 475 for 10 sets of one. What's the better one, right? And we look at team sports as this hybrid of movement, right? Where we look at, they got to run, they got to walk, they got to sprint, they got to jog, they got to go multiple directions. So they got to do a combination of movements of shuffle or crossover. They got to do different transitions from a power cut to a speed cut at different velocities, different amplitudes, different vectors with different influences from outside world. There's so many variables here that we have to account for 
But from a bioenergetic standpoint is what is their fuel reserve and their ability to repeat that effort really is predicated off of, I mean, there's a little genetic component there too, but you know, one of the things that we really need to understand here is that probably the capacity of that system is more important than the power of that system, right? And as we look at these two, all of those three primary energy systems between alactic, glycolytic, and then oxidative is each one of those has one all out effort form, right? So what is your best 100 meter sprint? What's your best 400 meter sprint? And then what's your best 1600 meter sprint versus how many times can you run 90% and above at each one of those distances with a three minute break, two minute break, one minute break, right? How, how many times, right? Like what is the ability to repeat that effort? Is it small? Is it really, really short? Is it, is it limited to, well, they can back squat this much. So that's really all that matters, but they can't repeat that any other time. And I think that's the question we want to get into here. Right. And I think that's the question that a lot of other things like other entities like track and field have tried to figure out. It's this whole premise off of building a base, you know, track and field and swimming have been notorious with, you know, pendulum swinging so far in so many different directions of you got to build a base, you got to get them doing miles so they can do sprints really fast, right? So they have this aerobic capacity to do the volume that they need to do, right? talk about this a lot with different entities altogether, right? A linear approach is just building volume and building connective tissue strength and cross-sectional area so you can have higher ceilings later, right? It's, it's all relatively the same. This linear approach of building a base and then peaking for a specific quality. Even if we're looking at Isserin's block periodization, you're layering in strategically higher volume to get either better fatigue management, higher capacity, or increasing resiliency of tissues to be able to go to handle higher forces, higher velocities, or higher power outputs. But as we look through it, you know, this very linear or very singular, singular direction of going from higher volume to higher intensity, I think that's too simplistic of a view in there. And I don't want to get this like, you know, the, the, away from this idea of Occam's razor is like the answer, right? The most simplest answer is probably the most correct one. But I think if we can look at it from a needs analysis, and just like we talk about strength deficit of if they need to be good in space, what are the qualities they need to do? They probably need to be more elastic. And what is their current ratio of, of counter movement jump to non counter movement jump versus if they need to be good in closed spaces, we need to be very concentrically strong or powerful. We need to improve their non-counter movement jump, relatively speaking, to counter movement jump. The same thing we can look at from a bioenergetic standpoint is if this person is extremely fast switch, or if this person has a very low VO2 max, that we're probably better served improving, obviously their biomechanics, which again, we talk a lot about in strength deficit, and we talk a lot about in this, and a lot of other modules about working on variability to improve the function and the, the, decrease the actual mechanical energy but on the other end it goes into we need to improve the body's ability to manage the fatigue substrates that come from doing very acidic work like anaerobic alactic or anaerobic lactic right and that's 
essentially the biggest thing here, as we go through glycolysis, which is this reptilian form of energy production, right? It's producing energy without the presence of oxygen. That as us as cells preceding us as homo sapiens lived in an environment without oxygen. So we go through this step called glycolysis where some sort of energy molecule enters a cell, specifically glucose, that goes through a series of enzymatic properties and starts to cleave off some different high energy phosphates like NADPH or FADH and starts to produce ATP. But one of the things you'll find out about glycolysis is it's a really expensive and inefficient process, right? We produce two, we use two. So we're probably, we're net two, but we really have to use four. So what, what is the really actual advantage here? We're not going to be able to sustain a high level of output and producing energy specifically through glycolysis. So once oxygen started becoming present from a cellular perspective, is we found a much more efficient way to produce energy. But as we get to this, you know, this part of, okay, most of the stuff we're doing in team sports is going to be judged and evaluated off of probably under 10 seconds of ability, right? So if I'm playing basketball, can I get up and down the court? If I'm playing football, can I get off the line of scrimmage and make a play? If I'm doing soccer, can I beat the person to the ball or separate from that person? playing tennis like it can go on and on and on and on but the idea is that the sport is played within this millisecond to second duration or success is predicated off of that the thing that's less known or less understood or less appreciated is we're not having to do that just once we have to do that multiple times and yes we are going through this very expensive process from the creatine phosphate to eight, or ATP utilization, creatine phosphate, trying to restore that, glycolysis, trying to go through, and then we get to this end product. And there's two directions here. If I have oxygen in the cell, I can convert that, glyc- that glucose into pyruvate, and that could enter the cell or the mitochondria to create acetyl-CoA, and it goes start to go through the citric acid cycle and then to the electron transport chain, and then we yield about 37 ATPs in that process. It's much more efficient. Versus if I don't have oxygen in the cell, right? Remember we talked about it from what we're learning from NEARS is that oxygen is utilized more readily for high energy needing activity. And the faster I deplete that, the more efficient I am. That all of a sudden that oxygen gets desaturated. And this is what you're probably thinking in your head sounds a lot like the anaerobic threshold that no longer is oxygen within the cell because I've occluded it. I've stopped arterial, arterial function, my stroke volume goes down, my heart rate goes up, heart rate goes up, stroke volume goes down, oxygen-rich blood becomes less than, I've occluded that area from just com- creating tension and contraction in that muscle, we start to restrict blood flow to that area, we, re- we limit venous return, so we're not removing CO2, we're not removing hydrogens, so we don't want to produce a lot of ATP, we want to actually stop. We want to stop what we're doing because this is hard to sustain at this pace. The body's trying to slow itself down because they don't, because they're about the red line. So what happens is now that that end product of, of glucose, because we have so many circulating hydrogen ions in the actual cytosol, starts to become lactate. 
right? So if we start to go this process without any oxygen entering the cell, well, then we have to start to look at, we're going to become really inefficient quick. And each rep, the faster I start to deplete oxygen entering the cell, and the more, the more I become fatigued, then all of a sudden I have a less of an output. You know, it's this massive sharp drop, right? So you can think about this from a counter movement jump in the amortization phase, right? Hopefully that's an analogy, analogy that makes sense is the more sharper that downward descent to a violent amortization phase, like a, a almost like a ice pick level of amortization, right? So you're imagining this V that's going down violently and then going right back up, right? That's what, that's what a good functioning cellular response to to respiration should look like or output bioenergetic should look like it's oxygen is circulating and enters a cell so i want to start to utilize high energy fossil or I want produce more energy faster so i start to use oxygen more readily but then all of a sudden contraction stops that spike goes back up so if we're looking at a repeat sprint ability or a high intensity interval sprint, it should look like this person that's asked to jump up and down really high and leveraging the stretch shortening cycle really efficiently. It's I'm pleading oxygen. That oxygen's now converting that end product of glucose into pyruvate so to start to produce more ATP more readily. And as I start to get towards the end of whatever bout I'm about to do, 60 minute game, 10 100 meter sprints name it doesn't matter i have more energy towards the end this is what timothy noakes is talking about is i can finish better than i started maybe there's a size principle thing here maybe there's a potentiating thing here or maybe quite frankly we're just more efficient at a bioenergetic scale now as we think about this and I strongly recommend you get on PH podcast and go through this module because the graphics on this are going to make this work. If you're just listening to this via podcast, I applaud you for just listening to my wonderful voice, but you're missing out on a really, really important part of this and seeing the actual written part and going through all of the thought processes that go into it and all the research articles that go into it and the books and resources that go with it and the graphics that really help this work. But it's, it's this thought of what Charlie Francis termed in terms of high-low. And this is, a, this is a breakdown from vertical integration, which if you're not familiar with vertical integration, is a business term, right? Do I want to develop my business by taking away the supply chain or buying the supply chain so I can create more profit over time, right? It's a short-term expense. It costs me money to buy my supply chain, but long-term profit. I think about it from, I need to get someone running a faster 100 meter. What's going to be the biggest rate limiting step? And as Charlie Francis would talk about with Ben Johnson is probably his ability to get as much volume as he can within a training cycle safely and effectively. Same thing we talk about with weightlifting. You know, it's why Abhijav went to multiple times a day of snatch, clean and jerk. That... In order to become a world champion, these people needed to accrue as much tonnage as humanly possible. But the biggest thing is, what can they sustainably do at a high level? If they can't hit higher threshold loads, like 90% and above, going through the Prilipin chart of like higher volumes at higher intensities, 
they're probably not going to be able to surpass their preceding level, regardless of their genetic makeup. You rely on, you rely, a lot of these smaller countries in Olympic cycles had to get really good. And I want to, you know, the, the caveat here is they were using PEDs, but the other side of it is who wasn't. So in regards to these smaller samples, these smaller countries with less population density, they found a way to work around a limited talent pool, a limited population that they can't just go straight attrition rate like other countries that with more populace and more talent like US or Russia or China. So they just start to figure out other ways. And it's about trying to create this vertical integration to get as much of a high, a high of a ceiling as possible by building up there. And it's not this train slow, be slow, build a base so you can have a higher ceiling later. It's strategically layering in, whether it's short duration training sessions or structuring your frequency to match a high with a low, or just organizing in a way that allows that person to get as much volume of high intensity stuff within a training session, a microcycle, a mesocycle, and then subsequently macro and quadrennial cycle. That's the difference. Go back to when I'm at Army. We have, we have more people, but less talent per person. We needed to find an edge to be able to get a leg up on our competition. So what we have to do is figure out strategic ways for our inside the box guys to get bigger, stronger, more powerful, get our outside the box guys become more skilled, faster, and just quite frankly, more efficient rapidly. And that's why we really wanted to lean in on this. And we started to look at how are the best track and field coaches training their 100 meter sprinters? Is it this very linear model? Is it just drills? Or is it a very sequenced approach to develop higher levels of output through capacity, building up, buying the supply chain so you can have a higher vertical integrate? The end goal is someone running faster or jumping higher or throwing something further. And that's predicated off of how much I can pump into that supply chain from an input perspective to get as maximal output as possible. So as we start to look at this, the rate limiting step goes back down to that glycolysis pathway. Glycolysis is really inefficient. If I don't have oxygen within the cell, I'm not going to be able to go through as much as I as, mu as much as I want because fatigue has become such a limiting factor. Hydrogen ions, CO2 removal, reactive oxygen species building up, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then all of a sudden, I get through a training session, don't nearly get as, as much density as I want or as much quality as I want. I may be really motivating and I may be able to push people past what they should be doing so they don't get as much quality within a session and maybe they get a higher risk or maybe they start to develop some bad mechanics or or bad inputs right and they start to just, just go into survival mode come back the next day that was a crap session so let's do that all over again let's try to repeat what we did and get further in the tank versus a much more strategic approach of looking at all right what do we need to track wellness rpe gps jumping all these metrics that can go into what we look at in terms of readiness, performance, evaluating our output, 
having a metric a metric that we actually can all agree upon actually really matters towards performance and then we can start to go to work and the thing i think about with different positions you can look at rugby so like that the, the group that scrums versus the guy that's just running around the field i don't know the names of the positions and i apologize for that but if you look at it from those guys and we look at from football or if we look at you know a goalie in hockey versus a a defenseman in hockey like just go on and on with all these examples it's like this idea that capacity for one doesn't mean capacity for the other right and one of the things that we start to look at is what can we do to develop that athlete to be as robust as possible from a training perspective to be able to handle the demands of a 60-minute game or doing a decathlon in track and field like whatever that dynamic is and if we simply look at it from this perspective as a vertical integration model of developing the supply chain and if you can't get the point of what i'm trying to get across the supply chain is oxidative capacity that is the supply chain the more robust our oxidative capacity is the higher the ceiling for either anaerobic alactic or glycolytic power but if i want someone to run faster for whatever duration they want to do it could come down to how much volume can i get at a high intensity and that's going to be either supported or limited by my development of oxidative capacity or lack thereof development of oxidative capacity amazing article it's in the notes steve plisk anaerobic conditioning he was saying this back in the 80s looking at it from anaerobic output is predicated off oxidative function that if my oxidative system isn't working then i'm not going to be able to get to the levels i want to do take that a step further charlie francis talked about this with key concepts in vertical integration using tempo runs using lower amplitude jumps like rudiment or med ball series or or core work to develop the larger functioning unit to allow for that, or that athlete to come back in on a high day, Monday, Thursday, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, whatever the function is that you set it up as, to get more robust output. That the engine of that athlete is what predicates the actual output of that athlete. The person's working with six cylinder, really high power, well, you better improve their economy of energy production. Because if they don't have a really good ability to recover between bouts, You'll see some of these really fast switch athletes that have incredible expression of speed, power, or force are going to be limited by what they can do repeatedly. And that comes down to oxidative capacity. Developing oxidative capacity in a manner in which predicates higher level of output from what we really want. An under 10 second bout that separates us from our competition at a later stage of the competition is what really matters here. One of the things that uh, I pulled from Charlie Francis's book was his you know, relative proportion of motor units, right? And we're thinking, all right, the high days is going to be loaded up with everything in red. Plyos, sprint work, resisted sprint work, hills, Olympic lifts, higher threshold movement patterns like squat, deadlift, at a higher intensity so plus 90 percent whatever rm we're working match that with low stuff everything in in yellow and light green rudiment 
tempo runs, very low intensity tempo runs, I should say, like 60 to 80% tops. And then we're looking at potentially light med ball throws, something that we could do for a sustainably longer time. And we start to build in this model of up and down, up and down, up and down. And over time, we build this system up and up and up. And one of the things that I think becomes here, and if you look at even something with banisters, fitness fatigue is, you know, fitness has this three day laggard effect and then fatigue should have this one day. And that ratio should be there. We start to really train and overreach and push, you know, that ratio starts to get twisted a little bit. We start to get a little bit more fatigue and a little less fitness adaptation. So we can get closer and closer to, all right, now we're inverting that fitness, which is one day, and then fatigue is lasting three days, right? That ratio is critical. And the way we focus on that without compromising, we need a certain amount of exposures within a training set, training week that we can do some high intensity stuff matched with low intensity stuff and still move net positive. That the low stuff allows for recovery and restoration. In fact, sometimes it amplifies the level or the rate of recovery. And as we start to push forward and develop this long-term approach to training, it's about moving up and to the right and managing this fatigue byproduct and looking at that step of when glycolysis turns into pyruvate or lactate, that that step in between lactate dehydrogenase, LDH, which is an equilibrium step that reacts to how much hydrogens are circulating within the cytosol, which is a byproduct of pyruvate trying to enter the cell, but producing this NADH, FADH through citric acid cycle, but the electron transport chain complex one and two don't want to let it go down the chain because it's just too acidic of an environment. There's not enough oxygen present that when we get to complex five, that we can't convert that final step in ATP because it's won't go to H2O. That this removal of water and CO2 isn't happening. So it converts to reactive oxygen species. And then we start to start to accumulate hydrogen ions and then we need to do something with them. So we push them back into the cytosol. Then all of a sudden glycolysis gets gunked up and lactate dehydrogenase says, hey, I'll, I'll take that. I'll oxidize that, I'll oxidize that, that excess, excess hydrogen ions and I'll add that to a lactate or I'll convert that pyruvate to a lactate and then I'll send that lactate out the cell. And one of the things that I think is really cool is when you have a lot of developed mitochondria within more type one muscle fibers. And if you look at it from type one versus type two or type two B, type two X, is the the distribution of mitochondria within those cells is gonna be much different, right? The function of type one muscle fibers is to support type two with anaerobic sports. It's not to my overly developed type one, which kind of dismisses the idea of train the base because we have to maintain that output so we have to maintain oxidative capacity all the way through is this idea that the more the more we have capillary density the more we have mitochondria the more we can more readily utilize oxygen at a local level the better we are at utilizing mct or monocarboxylate transport systems at a local level and this is something that i, I that rob jacobs and i have talked quite a bit about and i think it's a really important step that lactate leaving the cell has to go through this process of either going through the Cori cycle, getting all the way to the liver, getting reprocessed and turned back into 
back into Pyruve to turn into ATP versus at a local area, you can have these transport molecules that take that lactate from a fast twitch muscle fibers, transport it to a slow twitch muscle fiber, and then that goes through, there's not enough hydrogens in there, so that can, can, that can reduce that lactate into a pyruvate and turn that into acetyl-CoA, and then that can go into the citric acid cycle and then go through the electron transport chain to pump out a lot of ATP. And this is where we're looking at it from, how can we do this high energy output repeatedly well, it comes down to what is our actual support system, right? That occlusion that happens when we do a lot of contraction is going to create a lot of acidity and it's going to lower oxygen to the area and it's going to decrease stroke volume. And one of the things that you'll see from something like cardiac output, which is a underrated measurement in my, my mind, is that's most supported through stroke volume. That the primary way to improve cardiac output or the ability to utilize oxygen from a cardiovascular perspective, lungs, heart, arterial, capillary, and venous system is predicated off of stroke volume. How much, what's the volume of blood that we pump out per beat dictates how much oxygen is within that. The saturation or the, the, or the diluted effect of that blood, relatively speaking, a hemoglobin and oxygen it's predicated off of that stroke volume, which is the big impact on cardiac output, which is going to be how much we actually have oxygen within the area. And again, if we're thinking about from that nears, near infrared spectrometry, it looks at it from, if I have a rapid drop in oxygen, that means I'm really efficient. But the question would be is, do I have that same V going into the next rep and the next rep and the next rep? Or is it becomes just like start to be very shallow you? I'm not utilizing oxygen. Okay, well, I'm not going to be very efficient. I can't replenish it rapidly because I don't have very good support system from a type 1 muscle fiber or from a mitochondria-rich environment or from a poor capillary pooling and density. And then that arterial system doesn't really work as much, and I start to build pressure. Blood pressure goes up, so that 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 stroke volume goes down, and then all of a sudden I have this output that is less than. Remember, the goal is they'll probably run faster repeatedly. I can't run fast repeatedly if I don't have the energy to do it. And I don't have the energy to do it if I don't have the system to support that energy. The picture is we need to develop capacity simultaneously with, with whatever biomotor, force, velocity, ability that we're looking at. The end goal is... Not only will hopefully I be running faster, jumping higher, throwing something further, I can repeatedly do that. That the capacity has gone up with the power. That the ability to repeat this now greater than output than when I started becomes my biggest asset. Performance, again, is not necessarily doing something once, it's doing something multiple times at a high level. So as we start to break down the practical of this is thinking first and foremost, if I want my athlete to be in the best position to be successful, I really need to set them up from not only from a power perspective, what is their maximal ability at that bioenergetic level, 
but their ability to repeat that. And that's when it becomes more blended, right? And um, Evan puts up a great graphic on his website about everything's working in this triangle. And it's kind of like all blended together, right? And it has like this crosshatch look to it. That it's not this like linear model of like alactic, glycolytic, aerobic. It's everything's kind of working together. Oxygen and lactate are always being utilized. ATP, phosphocreatine, sometimes utilized. So we have to look at this as like my ability to manage my oxygen utilization and subsequently lactate utilization is going to be our biggest asset and our biggest ability to help our athletes. And that comes from developing oxidative capacity. And that goes all the way back to what Steve Plisk was talking about in the early 80s is if we have a we want to have a robust anaerobic athlete, we need to have a robust oxidative system. And that's what Charlie Francis is talking about with this high-low is low is making the engine bigger. That ability to go more is predicated on my ability to go longer. And if we start to break this down, there's a biomechanic thing here, and we talk about this a lot with variability and developing more range of motion and control at that range and all sorts of good stuff there. But it's the same principle here. This is a very simple thing on paper. It's build the system and the variability of the system so we can reach higher levels of performance. That the ability to go longer, the ability to go more range of motion, the ability to sustain more allows us to be more resilient, but also reach higher levels. That we have a, a much wider bandwidth to handle stress. And that allows us to be more robust, whatever it is that we're trying to do, we're trying to overreach and push the thresholds of that boundary. It's the athletes that are very limited on a very small window are the more susceptible to getting hurt, getting sick, overtraining. These are the things that we need to be conscious of if we're trying to reach these high performance strategies. So take home principles. We looked at bioenergetics, developing a lactic, developing a phosphate or glycolytic, developing oxidative, practical. It's understanding that regardless of what we're trying to do, we need to have a higher capacity. And I should say this too, it's inverted when we're looking at endurance athletes. And it's what we talked about with Andrew Gingerelli in his book, Finish Strong, is developing qualities that support them, right? So if they only run, their capacity is great, but their resiliency sucks. They have poor tensile strength of their connective tissue. They have low force output from muscular tissue. They have poor nervous system function. Their kick isn't going to be there. Their start's going to suck. You know, we need to develop a well-rounded athlete to reach higher levels. That their volumes are going to go down because they don't have enough lean muscle mass to support that level of duration. Same thing with an anaerobic athlete. They want to go higher or faster. They need to go ahead and be able to go longer uh, concurrently. And that's what we're developing here with this model is is looking at this from a, a really big perspective. It's, hey, this is important. We got um, Evan Pycon in here next week. Um, my God, what a what an absolute gem of uh, a human being. And honestly, like, if we're gonna go through this entire module, that's probably the most valuable thing you're gonna get from this. And like, I'm knocking my socks off in terms of how much depth and knowledge he has, as well as we got Andrew Gingerelli's podcast available. Um, again, you know, another great resource, uh, guy who's strength coach, got the endurance bug, looked at it from, man, there's a really big 
missing aspect of endurance training from strength training, I'm going to help them. So a bunch of people out there who are looking at this in a way that is facilitated to better overall performance. So, man, I hope you guys are enjoying this this whole module. Like, I'm having a blast on this one. Um, really, really appreciate everyone staying on listening. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed. Check us out on our website, PH Podcast. Uh, I think it's phpodcast.com. The module that supports this is is the game here. You know, I'm not trying to I'm not trying to oversell this. I'm just trying to give you guys the full bandwidth of of what this is talking about and the articles, books, the graphics, everything that supports this is right there. So I hope you guys enjoyed this. Appreciate you guys listening. Um, we'll definitely check you guys out next week with our interview with Evan Pycon. And uh, and then stay tuned for more announcements. We've got a lot of great stuff coming in the pipe with uh, maybe some, we have some overhaul of the website. we got a book coming out, um, some new projects. I got some more debates and lectures coming out. So, you know, just stay tuned. we got a lot coming out, coming out and appreciate everyone supporting and listening. We'll see you guys next week.